0: Hey Dad.
1: All right, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. Very good as a matter of fact.
0: I see you've escaped to Florida.
1: Yes, yes, your mother and I uh, we took a look at the weather forecast in New Jersey and it was not that promising for Memorial Day. so we decided to take a road trip, packed up the car, backed up Rocky, our dog. Your second favorite dog now. And we headed to Florida for a few days. So we're down here and we'll be back in a few days as well.
0: Very nice. What did you do
1: for Memorial Day?
0: Well, I worked a lot, which I'm very grateful for. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to work when a lot of people don't have that Mm -hmm. right now at this time. For those who don't know, I work in production. And when the pandemic started, I was out of work along with a lot of freelancers in our industry, and I was given the opportunity to remotely record these videos, which I never thought in a million years would be an option for me in my industry, but I'm very grateful for that, and I think it's really interesting because, I mean, it's not just me, it's a lot of everyday business has obviously moved to this virtual form of communication, including the justice system. And I think we briefly touched on it at the beginning of last episode. But from your perspective, if you want to give us a little more insight, what has that been like for you?
1: Well, uh, as you said, you never expected that you could operate remotely with what you do. <laughs> well, quite frankly, I never thought that I could operate remotely what I do. I mean, I'm a trial attorney. I go to court every day. That's that was my job. But with uh, the pandemic, you know, we have now evolved into a remote court, virtual court. I've done guilty pleas. I've done sentences, arraignments, had status conferences, all remotely, all from you know my chair in the living room. And it's quite an experience. Quite frankly, I think that this is going to expand. As a matter of fact, New Jersey is piloting Virtual grand juries, meaning that 23 people will be sitting in their living rooms or kitchens deciding whether or not a case should be indicted. So we'll see how that works out. But again, I don't think we're going to see anything that will lessen the use of virtual proceedings. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to be expanded. It's quite certainly, I think, going to be for new attorneys and attorneys up and coming, the wave of the future.
0: So I feel like that sort of segues into what we're actually going to be talking about today, being in front of the camera, in a sense. This is going to be a little different from the previous episodes that we've aired, but we thought our listeners might be interested in hearing about your court TV appearances and the cases that you commented on on that program. I remember being little and watching you on CORE TV in our living room. I remember even one time you brought us into the city or I think just me into New York to the studio, which I was so excited about to watch one of your tapings. I remember you going in the makeup room and coming out and looking like an Oompa Loompa because you had so much makeup on. It had like this orange tint to it. I don't know why they made you orange. I have to think it had to be because of the color temperature of the lights or something. I do not know. But I always just thought it was so cool that you were making these on-air appearances. I guess we could start from the beginning. When did you begin making appearances on Court TV?
1: So I started uh, Court TV in 1994, the spring of 94. Court TV started in 1991, and they were the first network that actually brought cameras into the courtroom and televised gavel-to-gavel proceedings with reporters on scene and an anchor and guest commentators. And you got to realize that back in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, there were very few courtrooms that allowed cameras in the courtroom, whether they be still cameras or television cameras. If you remember the old idea of the courtroom artist who would be drawing sketches of what was happening in a courtroom... That was what was occurring, but Court TV changed all that, and they started to get some really big notoriety when they telecast the Menendez Brothers trial, which I think was in 1993, and that sort of took off for Court TV. And one day I got a call from a good friend of mine, Jack Ford, who was an anchor for Court TV. He was a former assistant prosecutor in Monmouth County. So he called me up. And he says, how would you like to do a little guest commentating on Court TV? So I asked my boss, John Kay, do you think it'd be a good idea? Because there weren't too many prosecutors who were on TV. There were a lot of former prosecutors and defense attorneys, but not many prosecutors. And John said, yeah, yeah, go up do a good job and tell Jack I said hello so headed up to New York and started my career on Court TV
0: Very cool. So why do you think one of the reasons he called you to commentate on Court TV?
1: Well, the case that he was talking about was going to be a death penalty prosecution and he knew that I had tried a couple of death penalty cases was an experienced prosecutor and they really, you know, needed somebody to really not necessarily advocate, but to explain to the viewers what a prosecutor was thinking and and how he was going to proceed with a death penalty
0: case. What was that death penalty case?
1: So the case that I first appeared on Court TV was the state of Florida versus Danny Rowland. Danny Rowland was accused of murdering five students at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and it was quite a horrific case. So that's the first case that I was called to comment on.
0: So that case is such a crazy story. And Danny Rowland was nicknamed, I believe before they even caught him, but the Gainesville Ripper, because it was such a horrific case. And actually the Gainesville Ripper was the inspiration for the movie Scream, Mm. which is one of my favorite movies. And dad, you probably remember this, but (laughs) I think in 2015, Halloween rolls around and I went as Casey Becker, the famous Drew Barrymore character from the first Scream. She's killed in the first 10 minutes. It was like Wes Craven's ode to Hitchcock killing the star in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. One of my favorite scenes. And so I decided to go as her for Halloween. Yeah. And to my surprise, my dad showed up to the Halloween party and he was dressed as the ghoul ghost costume famously made in Scream. So we'll surprise. have to share. <laughs> surprise. So if anybody doubted our bonding over murder, look no further than our 2015 Scream-themed Halloween costume.
1: So I didn't realize that you know the Danny Rowland case was the, the basis for Scream until you know I took a look at some of the stuff in preparing for the podcast, and lo and behold, here we are with the characters in Scream, and now we're talking about Danny Rowland.
0: I know, pretty crazy. So, what did you comment on Danny Rowland's case? What was your commentary?
1: Well, you know, this this case terrorized the University of Florida when it happened. We went to, into a little background of the case uh, because what he had done is he had murdered five students over four days on the campus, in and around the campus of the University of Florida. He was not caught until two years later. He was burglarizing residences in Ocala, Florida, and he had used some toolbars to try to gain entry. And the tool marks that were gathered as evidence in the Ocala burglaries were matched to the tool marks used in the burglaries to enter the residence and kill the students. And so ultimately he was caught and charged with those murders of those students.
0: Yeah, I remember reading about the case and just hearing that he really terrorized the campus. And I think they started setting curfews. The college set curfews, and and I forget if they ended the semester early or uh, students just voluntarily left. And it was just like a ghost town because the college students were just so terrified of the Gainesville Ripper when it was happening. Um, so, what ultimately ended up happening in that case?
1: So, you know, when he was caught, he ultimately confessed to the murders of these students, but he was scheduled to go to trial in the spring of 1994. And right before the trial was to start, he pled guilty to the murders. And the state's attorney in Florida uh, then decided to proceed with the penalty phase, the death penalty phase, to uh, try to convince the jury that Danny Rowland should be sentenced to death.
0: And was he sentenced to death?
1: Well, yep. After the penalty hearing, which involved uh, his mother testifying, his girlfriend testifying, a lawyer testifying, a uh, psychologist testifying, uh, jury in April of 1994, ultimately came back with the sentence of death for Danny Rowland.
0: Wow. So what is another memorable case that you commentated on?
1: So the next case that, uh, I commented on was the people of New York versus Colin Ferguson. And in that case, Colin Ferguson boarded a rush hour train from Long Island Railroad, people heading back at the end of a workday back to their homes on Long Island, and he had an automatic weapon and 160 rounds of ammunition and systematically went down the aisle of the train shooting people and ended up killing 6 people as well as wounding 19.
0: Wow. I don't even recall ever hearing about this case, to be honest. I know it sounds like a really, really big story. I just, I don't remember hearing about it.
1: Well, well, there's a reason for that, but you know I'll get into that in a second. But this was a very interesting case because Ferguson initially had a court-appointed lawyer, and then he had uh, another lawyer who advocated that he should pursue an insanity defense, and then he had two very famous lawyers, William Kunstler and Ron Kuby, who were activist lawyers, who also believed that his best defense was an insanity defense. However, Ferguson rejected that defense and wanted to proceed by himself as his own lawyer and indicate or try to convince the jury that it wasn't him who did it. The irony of all of that is that the trial involved him actually cross-examining the people that he had shot. And it turned into quite a, I would categorize it as a bizarre, almost circus-like atmosphere in that trial. And ultimately, he was convicted and still serving time now for those murders and attempted murders. But the reason why, Mariah, probably you don't, hear very much about this case, is that his trial occurred around the same time as the O.J. Simpson trial.
0: Ah, that makes a ton of sense then.
1: Yes, exactly. That's, uh, That's why most people do not remember the Colin Ferguson, although it was a horrific case.
0: Absolutely horrific. I mean, it sounds horrific. That's a terrifying... I mean, you know, ending your work day and just heading home and you're at that point of relaxation and then have to deal with something so horrific like that. Can't even imagine. Um, but now it makes so much sense that I've never heard about it because O.J. Simpson was, I think, maybe the biggest media case, I think, in the world, no? Like, this case was <laughs> just such a crazy media sensation.
1: Well, you, you know, Mariah, it was billed. You know, back in like nineteen, started I think in nineteen October or November of nineteen ninety-four, and ended in October of nineteen ninety-five. So it it carried on for eleven months, and it was billed as the crime of the century, and it was almost like a, a professional sporting match, uh, like the prosecution the state of California versus the dream team it's almost like the Lakers and the Knicks were playing a basketball game and the promotion was endless for coverage of the OJ Simpson case and uh, so actually I was doing some time on some days double duty I would do Colin Ferguson in the morning and then in the later afternoon and or evening do commentary on the OJ Simpson
0: case Wow. So what do you remember about commentating on the O.J. Simpson case?
1: Well, the O.J. Simpson case obviously had many different issues involved in that case. And quite frankly, you know, as a prosecutor, I thought that the prosecution team, Marsha Clark, Christopher Darden, Bill Hodgman, uh, who were all experienced prosecutors, had a pretty good case. I mean, they had a bloody glove at the crime scene they had a bloody glove back at O J Simpson's residence they had blood on his socks blood on his bronco they had a motive in the case uh, you know he was a jealous ex-husband she was victim of domestic violence and you know of course everybody remembers that the two victims in this case Nicole Brown Simpson who was once married to O J and mother of their two children, had reported on several occasions that O.J. Simpson had abused her. And Ron Goldman, who was a waiter at a restaurant, unfortunately ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time by returning a pair of eyeglasses that Nicole Brown Simpson had left at the restaurant where he worked. And they were brutally murdered. It was a murder, Murders that were committed, which surely indicated that they were done with savagery and with intent. So I always thought that the prosecution had a great case to piece it together to prove that O.J. Simpson was guilty. Now, you have to remember that in this case, this was one of the first big cases with the use of DNA. And DNA matched various samples of Nicole Brown Simpson to evidence connecting to O.J. Simpson. But it also was subject to attack in the case as being contaminated or corrupted or planted as evidence by law enforcement. And that's what the defense hammered at during the course of this entire trial.
0: Right. I mean, it's just it's it's obviously one of the most famous cases of all time, one of the most interesting ones. And I love the portrayal of it on. I, have you watched The People versus O.J., The American Crime Story?
1: Yeah, I have. And uh, they did a pretty good job uh, portraying all of the characters because, you know, really, you did have a cast of characters. You had a very hard driven prosecutor in Marsha Clark. You had Christopher Darden, who was an Younger prosecutor who, you know, idealized and believed in the, the prosecution of this case, and then you had you know the dream team of lawyers on the other other side. Initially, Robert Shapiro headed the defense team, but then ultimately Johnny Cochran headed the defense team and moved in the position of the leadership role of the defense. But but don't forget you also had F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz barry sheck and all those guys robert kardashian uh, robert kardashian and all those guys were part of the defense team so and then he had barry sheck who was at the time the premier person dealing with issues involving dna so whoever characterized them as the dream team certainly did them justice because in fact they had probably some of the best lawyers in the country representing O.J. And we followed the case on Court TV from the very beginning of the preliminary hearing all the way you know, through the verdict. So I think I appeared maybe 20, 30 times on Court TV during the course of that almost a year of uh, the televised trial.
0: And do you have any specific moments that you remember, a comment that you made or anything like that that still you remember to this day?
1: Well, I do remember that one of the motivations or one of the reasons why the state of California pursued this was because of the fact that they believe that, you know, O.J. Simpson acted in rage because of the fact that uh, Nicole Brown Simpson either may have been seeing somebody else or didn't want to have anything to do with him. And she had a history of domestic violence. And I, remember that I was doing a lot of domestic violent cases uh, at that time back in uh, the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office. And I remember specifically commenting on uh, the victims of domestic violence. And I remember that uh, at some point during an interview of Nicole Brown Simpson's sister, that she actually mentioned my comment as being spot on about how victims who suffer from domestic violence, react in certain circumstances. So I remember that. And then I remember being called back to be around to sit, to wait and see for the verdict. And certainly that was very memorable too, when the jury came back, because if everybody remembers, they came back very quickly and everybody was surprised that they came back so quickly. And then everybody really wasn't sure what the verdict was going to be.
0: Right. And obviously, we all know that O.J. was acquitted for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman.
1: And, you know, it was pretty theatrical, too. I think that the the trial itself played to the viewers, and they were captivated uh, by this trial. And the commenting, you know, from my perspective as a prosecutor, and because there was some criticism of you know, the Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden, but I uh, never once criticized, you know, what they were attempting to do. I was just explaining what they were attempting to do. So I certainly wasn't in the position of saying that I would do something different or whatever, which some commentators did, but I was at least trying to explain to the viewers exactly what their position was going to be on various issues in the case.
0: Got it. So, on Core TV, what are some of the more mem- who are some of the more memorable people that you got to work with at Core TV?
1: Well, th- there were a great number of people that um, I got to work with. Number one, the late great Fred Graham, who was a CBS legal analyst uh, way before uh, they were in vogue, which they are now. Uh, he was a brilliant man and really knew the law. And he, he was sort of like the Vince Scully of Court TV, did an excellent play-by-play of a courtroom drama. So he was a great guy. But there were many others uh, who became quite famous in their own right. There's Greg Jarrett, who's gone on to bigger and better things. Terry Moran, who is a senior correspondent for ABC News was White House correspondent, international correspondent for them. I uh, appeared with Nancy Grace, I appeared with Savannah Guthrie, Ricky Kleeman, Dan Abrams. All of these people became very much involved after Court TV in big positions with various networks as legal correspondents. Ricky Kleeman uh, and I had done a number of cases together, and we had great chemistry, and she kept always bringing me back for my perspective. I thought she was a brilliant lawyer, a brilliant mind, and still she is doing legal commentary for CBS. Certainly, I have great fond memories of all of those people on Court TV. But I want to tell you, Rye, one of my favorite experiences was doing a show with Johnny Cochran after the O.J. Simpson case. Wow. Court, Yeah, Court TV had hired him. And originally, he did a show with him and Nancy Grace. And ultimately, he ended up having his own show called Cochran and Company. and. One day, I get a call from his producers saying that Johnny Cochran would like you to come up and do a show with him. I thought, wow, that's great. Johnny Cochran wants me to do a show. So I go up to New York. Now, I really, really was never nervous during a court TV commentating. But for the first time, going up to be on a program with Johnny Cochran, I, I was a little nervous because I wasn't too sure... You know how he was going to, you know, receive me. You know, here I was, his prosecutor, and he built his fame and reputation uh, representing cases that he believed that the prosecutor was not being fair or had wrongfully charged some individual. And here I was, I was first assistant prosecutor in Monmouth County, coming up to do the show with Johnny Cochran. But to my delight, we. Instantly hit it off because we had something in common. Believe it or not, Johnny Cochran. Not a lot of people know this, but he was the first assistant district attorney for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for a period of time. And so I went up there as the first assistant prosecutor for Monmouth County. Instantly, we had a bond of two former or two two first assistant prosecutors, and we commenced over that type of job and what it entailed. And then we rolled into whatever subject matter we were going to cover that evening. But that was the most enjoyable and memorable evening. And I was so sad when just a few short years later, he passed away. He truly was a a great lawyer and a very fine gentleman who was and is still a credit to the, the legal profession.
0: Yeah, I think like Johnny Cochran would have been one person that I would have loved to meet because I just feel like one, he's just such an icon in the legal world. And two, I mean, like what he did in the OJ Simpson case, he was just so theatrical, so over the top, but it worked and people loved him and people were rooting for him. Like you mentioned, like it was a sports team. And I mean, he created the most iconic line. In all of court history, I'm saying it there, people. If the glove does not fit, you must quit.
1: <laughs> I don't. I think that line obviously was something that uh, will forever be thought of as being one of the greatest lines to be uttered in a courtroom. And I'm sure lawyers all over the world have somehow either mimicked that line, or have used it, or paraphrased it in some trial or some uh, proceeding. But Johnny Cochran is the one who initiated it. Johnny Cochran is the one who delivered it. And that's the most important key. It could have not come off very well, but he delivered it and it was perfect timing. And quite frankly, you know, it was probably one of the turning points in that trial.
0: So cool. So when did you end court? TV and and
1: stop doing appearances with them. Well, Court TV sort of ended itself. <laughs> In 2008 they decided to go into a different direction and do sort of crime dramas and get away from the live courtroom televised uh, proceedings. And so that was 2007-2008, I think 2008 ended, you know, my Court TV experience. You know, just recently Within the last year or so, Court TV has come back as a digitalized network. And one of the original anchors, Vinnie Politan, who's a New Jersey boy of the original Court TV, is now the anchor for the new Court TV program. They're actually, once again, doing what made Court TV great is that the, the televised proceedings and giving commentary on those proceedings.
0: Yeah, I mean, Shit, I love watching trial footage. Like I just find that so interesting. And I mean all these cases were so public. It sort of just makes me think of today in the criminal justice world. I mean crime obviously doesn't stop. Have criminal trials been postponed. What are criminal cases going to look like moving forward?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good question, right? Because you know, criminal trials again are you know, involve person-to-person contact, where you have lawyers giving opening statements and lawyers giving closing statements and examining and cross-examining witnesses. And that is all done on a personal level where you're trying to connect not only with the witness, but also with the jury. And I think the fact that these virtual proceedings take away from that personal touch that Trial lawyers have and need to have when presenting cases in front of a jury. And so that's going to be a difficult thing. And I'm not too sure how that's going to be conveyed. I'm pretty sure that we're a long way from having virtual trials, but we may get there.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see. And, and we'll try to keep our listeners updated on, you know, moving forward. If if it does become some sort of virtual situation, we'll try to keep you posted on what that's like and, and the process of that. We also, we have a lot of VHS tapes from my dad and his court appearance or court TV appearances. So what we're going to try to do is get those transferred to files and hopefully we can post them to our website and other social pages. I just think that'd be really fun to kind of show some of the commentary that you did.
1: That's good. That's good. So we'll see how this uh, plays out, Rye, in the future. Certainly, I'll let you know if I become more and more a expert on the virtual reality of courtroom today.
0: Yeah, you can be the pioneer for it, Dad.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if my career is going to last that long, but. Oh, uh, I know.
0: It's true. But, uh, it was also really hard to try to get you on this remote recording situation. So but, maybe, maybe Pioneer is too strong of a word to use.
1: Maybe, maybe Pioneer is too strong, but maybe I'll go along with the flow.
0: Yeah. So I guess we'll wrap this episode up. We'd really love to hear from you on our email, gmail.com. Send us some requests of cases you'd like to hear from us. Any other tidbits that you want to send us would be really great. And thanks so much for listening to this episode on CORE TV and my dad's commentary. I found it really interesting and I hope you did too. So thanks for listening.
1: All right, Rye. I love you.
0: I love you too, dad. All right.